Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I'll be talking about Labour's new policy on 18 to 21 year olds with George Eaton and John Ellidge. Then Ian Steadman and Ajit Niranjan talk about ant sperm and what we can learn about competition from it. And then Shiraz Mayer and me discuss ISIS and Iraq. This week, Ed Miliband announced a new policy the withdrawal of job seekers' allowance from some young people aged 18 to 21. It's been portrayed both as a move to the right and an attempt to portray Labour once again as the party of work. I'm joined by a politics editor, George Eaton, and John Ellidge to talk about it. George, first of all, tell me, who does this apply to and who doesn't it apply to? So it applies to young people who lack what Labour call key skills. So that's um, uh, level three qualifications, such as A-levels or vocational equivalents. Um, And at the moment, they can claim adult job seekers allowance from now on. Um, they will be eligible for a means-tested youth allowance conditional on them entering training. Uh, there are exemptions, so those who already have uh, those the relevant qualifications will still be able to claim GSA as now. Uh, the disabled, severely disabled, will not be affected because they, ha- they claim other out-of-work benefits in, in any case. Um, parents with children under one and those who also come from troubled family backgrounds. Um, so actually one of the... Um, one of the key elements of the policy is that it's means tested based on parental income. And so if someone for some reason isn't able to uh, to live with their parents, uh, they will be exempt. Which is something that's come up before in return, the idea of taking away housing benefit from under 25s. Cameron got a lot of stick for that because it was predicated on the idea that everyone's parents had a spare bedroom that they'd really still be happy to have their kids living in until the age of 25. John, you're not as enthused about this idea as, uh, as George is. Why? No, well, I suppose there are two reasons, one practical, one political. The practical reason is that we've, as a country, we've systematically failed to invest in the further educational and vocational skills sector over a period of decades. I mean, one of the reasons the the, the grammar school system never quite worked as everyone was hoping it would is because in Germany, which is the, the version we copied it from, you have, well, they're effectively grammar schools, you have mainstream schools, but you also have technical schools. We never bothered to develop the third part of that. Plus, further education colleges, which is where these kind of skills are taught and which I imagine would have a a large responsibility of delivering on this policy, have seen their budget repeatedly and horribly slashed 
And unlike when you try and slash the schools or university budgets, nobody cares. There's never an outcry. You can cut 30% from the further education budget and it goes almost unnoticed. It's just not clear to me that we have the the, the, the facilities or, or you know, frankly, the teaching staff to actually provide the, the extra skills training that, that Miliband is talking about. That's the, pr the policy practical concern. The political one is that I'm just not sure he's going to win many friends by jumping to the right. It's not a very convincing narrative for him. Nobody's going to start believing in Ed Miliband as, as a centrist politician. I worry he's alienating potential voters without necessarily winning the the marginal voters that he's clearly going for with this policy. Well, this is something, George, you talk about in the columns. You talk about these focus groups where people are asked to imagine a typical Labour voter and they imagine a lazy slob on the mm. sofa. Is that why he's... I mean, to me, this seems to be a policy that's the headline sounds quite grr and angry and, and scourge and hammer of people. And then you read all the exemptions and it's... It's much, it seems to me then much less angry mm. and draconian than it looks at first grasp. Absolutely. And I would say don't judge the policy by the headlines. And I don't think Labour's aim was to get sort of Labour cracks down on welfare style headlines. I mean, that certainly is not how they were spinning it yesterday. But they were quite keen to emphasise that this is a progressive measure. This is not punitive. And they've really adopted this because they think it's good policy. And the main reason is that at the moment... Um, people are left often to cycle between poor work and no work. Um, it's the taxpayer that picks up the tab and they never get the qualifications that they need to progress to a fulfilling career, mainly because there's this 16-hour rule. So if you spend more than 16 hours a week in further education or training, you're not eligible to claim benefits. That will now change. And Ed Miliband really sees this as part of his response to what he calls the forgotten 50%, so those who don't go into higher education. Those who go into higher education from low-income backgrounds are obviously supported by the state in, in the form of grants and loans, but often those in further education aren't. So he wants to correct that. I mean, the practical concern that John raises is, is absolutely right, and certainly if this policy was being introduced by the coalition, it would be, it would be the exact issue. Um, I know Labour intends skills to be a priority for investment, um, I, I think they do need to give far more detail on what sort of training this will be. Is it is it going to be the the kind of meaningful training that is that is worthwhile for people? Because of course this is means tested, so it does mean that some people who um, can, there will be losers from the policy. It is expected to save money. Um, about, is it sixty five million pounds? Yeah, which is not amazing. No. So it is more of a, a signal policy than it is a, a, yes. a headline figure. John, what do you make of that point, the idea that, that you think that there will be a concomitant rise in, in investment in skills? I think that would be welcome. I think 65 million remains a fraction of the amount that's been cut from the, the skills budget over the past five years, so it's still barely going to be making up that ground. More to the point, though, you can't just flick a switch and pour some money into the system, um, to mix the metaphors terribly there, you can't just instantaneously magic... Uh, hundreds and thousands of uh, teachers math teachers and, out yeah. into existence. It takes ages to train those people up and it's not clear to me where they're going to come from. I think the, the idea behind this policy is, is wonderful. I mean, obviously the, these are people who, who we should be investing in as a society. But it's not clear to me that anybody actually has any answers for how we're going to make that happen at this point. George, how do you feel about the point, being an authentic young person, that this is another policy that's about screwing over young people? 
I think there have been... But maybe you don't accept the no, premise of screen over... No, but you know what I mean? How yes. many young people in a way you well, wouldn't get? I think what... I think, that, I think that is true. I mean, the young have been... All the, it's, it's what the figures show. They have been uh, hit harder by austerity than, um, than other groups, being particularly the elderly, who have had all their benefits protected by the coalition largely for political reasons. What I think Labour should do is couple measures like this, which can be sort of spun either way, um, with measures like a, a big cut in tuition fees, which Miliband's spoken about before, so cutting it to 6,000 at least, maybe even taking it down to 3,000 because it looks as if the new system might cost more than it saves. Um, they're going to do things like um, you know, abolish the, the bedroom tax. They've got a youth jobs guarantee where anyone, any young person who I think is out of work for more than a year will be offered a paid job paying at least the minimum wage. Again, the question, the practical is, is are these jobs going to be of sufficient quality? And who's going to create them? Is it just going to be the government? Labour insists we'll get companies to sign up to this. Um, I think they need to give far more detail because otherwise it just doesn't seem credible that Labour and Peace have told me you know, they, they, they tried to sell this policy on the doorstep to voters. You know, we will guarantee you a job. And they say, how can you guarantee someone a job? Um, you you hope that that kind of detail will come closer to the election. And what has the response been from the two parties in the coalition to this announcement? Because the Lib Dems have kind of bravely, I guess, have maybe suicidally started talking about education again. Yes. Well, the the Conservatives have said what you'd expect them to say, was, which is you can't trust Labour on welfare. They've voted against all the big cuts we've introduced. This is just another desperate attempt by Ed Miliband to make up the lost ground. Hashtag long-term. <laughs> yeah. The um, Liberal Democrats, I saw Steve Webb, the uh, who is also, of course, the pensions minister speaking earlier, they are attacking it from the left, as far as I can see, saying this is, this is punishing young people and also that it's depriving them of autonomy because it's based on parental income. I think that is probably the, the strongest and most damaging criticism from the left is why is this based on why are we making young people more rather than less reliant on, on their parents when we should be encouraging independence and so on. And John, your background is in education journalism. What what actually could be done by parties to improve that forgotten 50%? I think we need a lot more investment over a longer period of time, to be honest. We need to be actively trying to build up the infrastructure and the, 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 and the teaching staff to deliver on these kind of practical skills, so not just uh, not just literacy and numeracy, which are the, the kind of core skills, but also sort of into into actually vocational training. And there are some fantastic examples of, of colleges uh, teaching these kind of courses out there, um, but they're few and far between, and nobody really pays them very much attention. Is the problem that by and large, journalist children and politicians' children don't go down the vocational route; they go down A levels and degrees. I think that's a massive problem. I mean, it, it just doesn't feature in the debate at all because the kind of people who sit around microphones in the New Statesman office and have conversations like this uh, are by and large not the kind of people who've, who've been to a vocational college. I and I'm ashamed to say I'd never set foot in a vocational college until I was writing about them. Um, it's just not an area I instinctively understand. And I think this is a problem you can see right across the piece in public debate. Until until we find a way of addressing that, it's not clear to me you're ever going to drum up the enthusiasm for the sort of level of in investment and change that's probably required to create a, a truly world-class skill system. On that note, I'll say thank you very much to John and George.
I'm joined by Ian Stedman and Ajit Niranjan, who is our Wellcome Trust scholar, to talk about the sperm of desert ants, because uh, we like to keep this podcast eclectic. So, um, Ajit, you've written a piece basically about cooperation, and your your piece included the words giant sperm train, so I think it's probably better (laughs) if you explain it rather than me sniggering throughout. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, what we found is that there's been a variety of studies into how sperm cooperate in order to aid fertilisation, and... um, Whilst in these desert ants, we didn't actually get these hundreds of sperm on sperm trains. Um, you do find that in wood mice, in which uh, sperm actually develop a little hook on the top of their heads, in which they link up to each other and, uh, yeah, form giant sperm trains. I'm just going to read out for people. This is an ant called Cataglyphus savinii, I presume named after someone who's now regretting it being named <laughs> yeah. after them. These sperm can form enormous, super-fast, multi-tentacled bundles. Yes. And they can achieve speeds of one and a half times what they'd be able to achieve on their own. So, Ian, this is another kind of counterintuitive example of, I presume it's to the detriment of every individual sperm, but as a bundle they do better, so... Yeah, it's it's that idea that they've evolved to... Um, what it, isn't it? It's to do with the fact that they, the sperm is stored for a long time. Mm. So it's not, like, um, it's not like in mammals, for instance, where um, it's like the sperm gets the egg and that's it. Um, the queen ant can kind of like take a big bundle of sperm and store it away for like weeks or months. 20, 20 yeah. 30 years. I yeah. Think yeah. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> which is, you know, a, if that was human, that would be a problem, but it's not. Um, and so they need, you want to have as many sperm as possible surviving rather than just the one fastest. I'm going to slut shame queen ants here because yeah. they, uh, they mate with nine mm. males in quick succession. Uh, and the males die immediately after mating. So presumably, yes, the answer yeah. then is that you really want to... So even though if your individual sperm are cooperating, you're still as a bundle doing better than the sperm of that other yeah. guy that just you know turned up yeah. immediately after you. It's, uh, it's a marathon, not a sprint, effectively, <laughs> is the That's issue. Beautiful. But, um, I mean, do you, you talked about this being seen in, in wood mice as well. Is there, mm-hmm. Are there any other animals that you would see this kind no, of behaviour? No, surprisingly not. But um, the wood mice example is quite interesting because... In the wood mice, the sperm actually sacrifices their chances of fertilising the eggs. So whereas with the jellyfish-like bundles from the ants, it's more, the more the merrier. With the wood mice... Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The ones that actually join these trains have a, I think it's a 50% chance of losing their ability to fertilize. Okay, so this is something that you see in the selfish gene as well, that the idea that people got the, the kind of the wrong idea about that book, about it being purely about selfishness, but there is an yeah. explanation within it for altruism as well. So mm. if you're the so aunt or uncle, I'm not sure you can really anthropomorphise <laughs> animals like that, you know, yeah. lovely granny, but the, it makes sense for you to sacrifice yourself for someone who is genetically related to you yeah. because the, the gene is the unit of, of selection. Yeah, although that hypothesis is now largely kind of discredited in terms of... Uh, the, the, um, the bonds of altruism do seem to be more, more instinctual and not quite as related to blood and genetic link, for instance. Um, it, it, there's, more, I mean, that was written in the 70s, the selfish gene. Um, and it, it, in, like, you can see this in disaster um, scenarios, for instance, where 
um, you know, in Hollywood, um, the zombie invasion or the end of the world or whatever causes mm-hmm. everyone to, to turn on each other and basically become incredibly self-centered and stuff. But in actual disasters, where like tsunamis or earthquakes, people become incredibly cooperative just instinctually. Um, it seems to be this That thing. is kind of not to turn this from ant sperm to the tube, but you know, when something really bad happens, a tube carriage breaks down, people are a lot less kind of... That's when um, people start talking to each out other. Out of my way, scum, <laughs> yeah. you know. And that, and that actually seems to be the point that people like, yeah, start yeah. Mm-hmm. talking to each other. Maybe we need more you know, more disasters. No, that's not that's not right at all. The reason I think this is, is interesting is we have an um, an essay in the magazine this week by Margaret Heffernan who's written a book called A Bigger Prize, which is all about the difference between competition and um, collaboration in businesses. And people are more and more moving away from the idea that competition is the highest goal. And it's it's, it's kind of funny to go from Ant Sperm to Fred Goodwin. But um, the idea might be that, you know, if you focus purely on competition and that being the kind of highest good, then you actually mean that you lose out on a huge amount of development that would have come by people talking to each other. Mm. And presumably this is something that scientists and research have seen as well. Yeah. The the first thing that I thought of when reading this actually was an episode of This American Life, which is a fantastic American radio show if you don't listen to it. Um, Don't tell people about other better podcasts. (laughs) It's very good, though. Um, And it was an episode about um, Barbados and Jamaica and how when they became independent, their uh, human development index was very similar. There were similar levels of poverty and inequality and stuff. Um, But Barbados today is doing a lot better than Jamaica. And the theory put forward in this episode of This American Life was that because of the different approach to cooperation and competition in business. So in Jamaica, they adopted a very antagonistic uh, relationship between unions and business that was very American-influenced, uh, where basically like, un- unions and businesses were enemies, and they were never going to get along. Uh, whereas in Barbados, they adopted a much more European, uh, well, mainland European-style um, cooperative one, where like business disputes were, and you know, large business decisions and stuff were made by boards sitting down with the workers and people kind of cooperatively coming to a compromise that everyone could agree with. Mm. I mean, it's one theory, but uh, it was something that reminded me. I think scientists at the moment are very keen on this idea because the kind of one of the big myths that people, not myths, you know, but the kind of big narratives that you have about 20th century science is the space race and Mm. the fact that that was so much driven by the fact that America and the Soviet Union were, you know, they desperately wanted to beat each other. And now the fact is that, you know, one of the biggest and most inspirational projects we have is CERN. We have the Large Hadron Collider. And that's scientists from, what, nine, something crazy, like 20 more more different countries coming together. I mean, the canteen must be a a total scrum. (laughs) But it's not such a, it's not such a sexy story, is it? No. We're not attuned to the idea of thinking of, of... of that yeah. as, a, as a way to do things. It's also similar to that old idea that you know the Great Depression was fixed by uh, the Second World War, which is true-ish. But at the same time, it, it kind of it's the fact that um, it was a lot of people coming together for one goal rather than. I mean, if if wars are really good at fixing recessions, then every time we have a recession, we should build lots of ships and then sail them all into the middle of the ocean and sink them with no one on board this time because you don't <laughs> want to kill anyone. But, you know, if, if we just simulate a war, really, but that's not the point. It's the technological, it's the massive investment in technology. It's societies coming together for common goals. This is the title of your best-selling forthcoming economics <laughs> yeah. book. Watch out, Thomas Piketty. I'm going to finish by asking you, do either of you have a good insect fact? I've got one that I found out the other day uh, about caterpillars. Go on. That is that when caterpillars turn to butterflies in a... Um, chrysalis, they completely liquefy in the chrysalis. Um, so, like, they, they just become like a mush in there. They're not sort of like growing new legs or wings or anything. They, they do just completely turn into a liquid and then turn 
into a completely different solid, which is weird. That is very, <laughs> yeah. very weird. I, do we know how that works? Um, God, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that can't be the answer no, to everything. I don't have an insect fact, but I do have um, a fact about slow lorises, which I've stolen yeah. from the QI podcast, which is another excellent <laughs> podcast, yeah. which is that they store um, venom in their elbows. And then they lick it, and they keep it in their teeth, and then if they bite you, that's really bad. Oh, God. So they look so adorable, but don't, don't yeah. let them yeah. nip you. Those no. are the lorises on YouTube that are really cute. They've been defanged, haven't they? Well, that's harsh. Because the, they're, they're nocturnal, so they're really scared. So they're like... They, I mean, they're big, wide-eyed, and they look really cute and stuff, but um, they've been defanged. And they don't stop bleeding, so they will die soon. Well, that's a nice way to uh, end the podcast on. Save the slow, Loris. Thank you very much to Ajit and to Ian. I'm joined by Shiraz May here, who is a senior fellow at the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation at King's College London, to talk about ISIS. So, first of all, for people who've been under a rock for the last week, who and what are ISIS? ISIS, um, a lot of people think of them as a terrorist organisation. I think that's the wrong way to characterise them. They're really an insurgency. And what they've done is they um, have their roots in al-Qaeda in Iraq. They later morphed into something called the Islamic State of Iraq and operated with a greater deal of autonomy from al-Qaeda's central leadership. Um, but really they were quite meaningless and quite fringe, very much a power in decline. Um, once the Syrian conflict started, they moved up into Syria and were really rejuvenated by their experiences there. They were able to take large chunks of territory. They absorbed the greatest number of foreign fighters coming into that country. And they were also quite strategic about what they were doing. They didn't just target big urban centers, but they went for industrial areas, areas where they knew they could get resources and that they could then start to generate revenue. So they've now generated tens of millions of dollars. They've got fighters who've come in from around the world who have combat experience, Chechens and Bosnians in particular. For any army, that's the most effective soldier you could have, someone who knows how to fight in battle. And as a result of that, they've been able to build a head of steam to generate some momentum up in Syria, which has now propelled them down into Iraq. And what is their ideal outcome? What do they want? ISIS is a particularly hardline organisation. It is the embodiment of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's vision, the guy who led al-Qaeda in Iraq against uh, coalition forces during the invasion of Iraq uh, in 2003. What they want is an Islamic state. But what differentiates them from al-Qaeda is that, as I say, al-Qaeda is or was a terrorist organisation. It was hitting targets in the West and was bogging the Western world down into wars and into fighting. What ISIS is doing is it's taking territory and it's building a support base and it's building a parallel society. So that's the key difference here. That's quite an interesting point, isn't it? Because David Cameron in the Commons yesterday said he thought that they were a threat to Britain. And I saw Frank Gardner, the BBC security correspondent, last night on the 10 o'clock news saying he'd initially kind of gone, "Uh uh-oh, is this 45 minutes, WMD all over again? But there seems to be some suggestion that David Cameron has had a briefing. Do you buy at all that thesis that they are a threat to the West and Britain particularly? I think ISIS is a threat um, in in its sort of grand vision. It does uh, posture very aggressively towards the West. It does have a global vision. It wants to establish a caliphate that... Um, has no borders and will ultimately take over the world. Now that's the grand vision for them. We've seen in the past how these groups have formed splinters that do come uh, and have terrorists uh, who commit activities in the West. It's hard to know right now 
why that would be in the interest of ISIS. They are holding territory, and there's no force right now that is able to tip the balance against them. The Iraqi army and the Syrian army are simply incapable of doing that. So for now, I think from a strategic point of view, it doesn't make sense for them to want to attack us. I think for now they want to consolidate and grow with the territory that they're holding. And you talk about in your essay for this week's magazine the idea that they now have something to lose. They've made some of these gains. Um, We also have a piece by Jonathan Rugman who works for Channel 4 News from the Kurdish capital of Erbil where he says you know, they're fighting on that front as well. Have they gone too far too fast? Is that probably what will bring them down in the end? In some respects ISIS have stretched themselves quite thin but they're also very, very smart. So They haven't diluted the uh, ultra-sectarian aspect of their ideology. They want to kill the Shias. They are the primary target of their campaign. They may strike some kind of pragmatic truce with the Kurds for now. The Kurds have given them a hard time traditionally and in in the last few years. In Syria, when they attempted to uh, go into Kurdish areas, that's where they faced some of the fiercest resistance. You'll see the same uh, in Iraq too. What's interesting is that they're operating as force multipliers now. They're going into Sunni areas where the awakening was dominant, where ordinary Sunni tribes raised arms against al-Qaeda and pushed all these guys back. They've said, look, even if you killed a million of us, we now have orders to forgive you. Because what they want to do is to win over the support of those Sunni tribes that feel let down by Maliki and the central government. So they're achieving a widespread network of informal support across large parts of Sunni-held areas. And I think that's giving them the ability to control larger areas than they otherwise would be able to with the manpower they have. So yes, they're overstretched, but they're developing networks of informal control, which is allowing them to take larger swathes of land than would otherwise be possible. And how much credence do you give to the idea that this is an inevitable consequence of toppling Saddam Hussein, a strongman who was a secular strongman in the region? Is that an overly simplistic way of looking at what's happened here? I do think it is, and we will inevitably end up going to the sort of counterfactual by answering this question. But I think it's worth entertaining. What would have happened, given the unrest we saw in North Africa, um, if Iraqis had risen up against Saddam in that way? Well, we know from the past how Saddam dealt with dissent. We could have seen both Syria and Iraq crumbling in the way that they are now in any event. So I think um, it is simplistic to take it all back to the 2003 invasion. But at the same time, you can't understand what's happening right now without acknowledging that that invasion did cause some of the circumstances. And yesterday, Maliki was asking for airstrikes. Is that something you think is likely to happen? And if it did happen, would it solve this problem? It's hard to know quite uh, if it will happen. I think the problem is it won't solve the problem uh, in any meaningful way. If you look at the United States strategy under Obama, which has been to employ drone warfare in Pakistan or in Yemen um, in particular, it's because they've got a very sophisticated network of intelligence and informants on the ground who are able to give them fairly accurate information about where to target and where to bomb. In Syria and Iraq, we have no lines of intelligence, and so it's hard to know quite what you'd be hitting. You just have to randomly hit areas of militants, which in and of itself won't achieve anything. And of course, right now, as I say, if you look at the narrative and dynamics of these groups, they are talking about internally what's happening. We have the opportunity for an Islamic state. We have land in Syria. We have land in Iraq. They're not so concerned with the West. If we begin to bomb them, they may well start to, to look at us and to say, well, we have to start sending people back to Europe to carry out suicide attacks or things like that. And this is the the idea of blowback which you talk about in your essay, but I will leave that as people need to buy the magazine. Thank you very much, Shiraz, for joining us. Thank you.
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. 